So I've, uh, I've been looking forward to this sermon from the time that we started John's Gospel, and um, excited to get into this with you today. Last week, uh, if you were here, Justin took us through the majority of Jesus's exchange with the Pharisee Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and you can go ahead and turn there to uh, John 3 with me this morning. Uh, Justin focused primarily on Jesus' famous words to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And what we saw was that being born again is not primarily our work, it's God's work. As Justin so eloquently put it, did you play a role in your first birth, right? No, it was not primarily your work, even though you were certainly involved in the process, and such is the case with your spiritual rebirth. And this is highlighted in what we may be inclined to see as the central verse of John 3, which is verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And yet, that verse seems to say two paradoxical things. First, that God did something, that God loved the world, and that God sent his only son. But, but then second, that you and I have to do something. Believe in Jesus. And many people would say that this verse is a perfect summation of the gospel. But is it? Is that what Jesus was trying to do? Is that how we should receive it? Uh, today, we are going to consider John 3.16 in the context of John 3, which is the context of Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. And we're going to finish out that conversation as well uh, by reading through verse 21. So if you would uh, read along with me this morning, John chapter 3, we're going to read verses 16 through verse 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. How did John 3.16 become John 3.16? When it comes to Bible verses, everyone knows. I mean, this is really at the top of the heap, isn't it? Um, I heard somebody say recently, though, that possibly in our day, it's maybe been supplanted by uh, judge not lest ye be judged, right? That maybe people know that a little bit more even than John 3.16. Um, but as a like Bible verse, like chapter verse reference, 
it is easily the most well-known um, in America. And that's because for some time now, it has been a feature of the American pop culture zeitgeist. You see it at sporting events. You hear it from fiery church evangelists. It's famously on the bottom of the cups at In-N-Out Burger. Um, and the reasoning is pretty clear. Um, the hope is that people will see the reference, that they will look it up, and become followers of Jesus. Um, I called it an American phenomenon because it primarily is an American phenomenon. Analysis of the writings of the early church fathers, as well as medieval Christians, show that John 3.16 was not a primary verse that would be appealed to for much of church history. A far more commonly used verse in the early church from John was John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You would see that verse far more often in the writings of the church fathers. Also, John 1.14 was used often, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, Dr. Beth Allison Barr, who is in the history department at Baylor, uh, did an analysis of the writing of medieval Christian theologians, and found that the most commonly used verse during that period was Matthew 25, 34 through 41. I guess I should say a passage rather than a verse, um, which is from the parable of the sheep and the goats. Whatever you do to the least of these, you have done it unto me. In the medieval period, that tended to be a verse that was appealed to, to most often. And that's not to suggest that these verses are more important, um, but rather that in different periods of time, in different cultural situations, different passages of Scripture kind of come to the surface as being significant in the culture. John 3.16 um, arose during a period of American revivalism known as the Second Great Awakening, which was a period in the early 1800s. And this was a time when uh, tent revivals and camp meetings, as they were called, uh, were all over the place, but primarily in the American frontier. As the country moved westward, you had uh, what were known as circuit riders which were evangelists who would literally ride on horseback across the American frontier, putting on these sort of makeshift church services, even in places where there was no church. And they would come for the sole purpose of proclaiming the gospel and seeing people saved so that the church would be planted in that place. And the early part of the 1800s was sort of an unprecedented time of activity um, as it related to evangelism and revivalism. And it was also a period of time because... It was on the frontier, and because evangelists and preachers were primarily talking to people who were largely uneducated, that the gospel would be boiled down into sort of these pithy sound bites that people hopefully could understand. And John 3.16 seems on the surface relatively easy for people to understand. You want to live forever? Believe in Jesus. You want to die? Don't believe in Jesus. But, but is that 
the point? Is that what it's saying? Is John 3.16 the gospel? Is it an adequate summation of the good news of Christ? Or is it more of an American reduction of the gospel into a pithy soundbite? Certainly, it's Holy Scripture. So we can say it's true. But is it meant to stand alone by itself in the way that it is made to in most contexts today? So one of uh, the first things I want to point out to us today that might not be apparent to us on the surface um, is that it is not clear who is speaking here in John 3.16. There are a number of things that have been added to our Bibles over the years. Justin mentioned last week the fact that chapter numbers and verse numbers have been added to our Bibles over the years. And these things have been added to hopefully make make it easier for us to engage with the text. Uh, Also, headings have been added in most of our Bibles. The ESV heads this paragraph as, for God so loved the world. But those things are not original to the text. Another thing that's been added to our Bibles that may be invisible to us are marks of punctuation. The original Greek text literally looks like one enormous run-on sentence. Uh, There are not breaks in between sentences. There are not necessarily paragraphs. Uh, There are not marks of punctuation. And obviously punctuation colors the way that we read and understand a a text in English today. Uh, The comma, for example, right? A sentence where commas are effectively deployed reads differently from a sentence where commas are not effectively deployed. A recent magazine article that opted not to use commas at all was titled, unfortunately, Rachel Ray finds inspiration in cooking her family and her dog. (laughs) So it makes a difference, right? What's most relevant to our purposes today, though, is the quotation mark. There are no quotation marks in the original text, nor are there in like the early English translations of the Bible. So if you're reading the King James Version, um, you're not going to see quotation marks in this passage. Um, If you look at your Bible, though, if you're reading from the ESV or maybe the NIV, what you're going to see is that there is a quotation mark that opens in verse 10 of chapter 3, but it never closes. Um, Then another quotation mark opens in verse 16. And the choice that translators are making here is that Jesus begins talking in verse 10, where it says, Jesus answered him. He answered Nicodemus. So that seems clear. But then they think he continues speaking in verse 16. And since it's the beginning of a new paragraph, they provide another open quotation mark at the beginning of the paragraph. But some translators think that Jesus finishes speaking at the end of verse 15, and then perhaps John, who's writing this gospel, picks up and summarizes or editorializes on what Jesus has said to Nicodemus, which is verses 16 through 21. Preeminent Greek scholar Bill Mounts, whose textbook Basics of Biblical Greek is what like every seminary student has to read early on, he points out this thing that John does where Jesus will be engaged in an exchange with somebody. He'll he'll be having like a dialogue with someone such as Nicodemus, but then things will transition into more of a monologue suddenly. And 
Regarding this passage, he says, Nicodemus is there in the first 10 verses or so, and then he just kind of vanishes and isn't mentioned again and doesn't respond again in any way. Um, And that's true. We're not really sure where that transition happens, though. Um, And yet most translators tend to agree that John 3, 16 through 21 is a unit. But it's a unit that's connected to what comes before John 1, 3, 1 through 15. So either Jesus is going into a monologue here and is expounding on the things that he has said to Nicodemus at the top, um, or John, the apostle who is writing this gospel, is using this as an opportunity to encapsulate or perhaps summarize what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. So from a contextual point of view, this paragraph that is our primary text today does not stand alone. And as a result, John 3.16 in and of itself does not stand alone. Um, And if it does stand alone, just as sort of a non sequitur in the middle of this chapter, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. If Jesus is still talking here, he is still talking to Nicodemus. Scholar Don Carson thinks, though, uh, that this is in fact not Jesus talking, but rather John, who is giving us a summary of the point of Jesus's exchange with Nicodemus. But either way, understanding 316 and beyond has to be rooted in an understanding of the things that have come before, in an understanding of the things that Jesus has said to Nicodemus. So let's look at verse 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So one of our questions today is, is this an adequate summation of the gospel? But before we can answer that question, we have to ask, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? The word gospel, as most of us know, I think means good news, but it comes from the Greek word euangelion, which interestingly is a word we do not find in John's gospel. In fact, we really only find it in two of the gospels, predominantly in the gospel of Mark, but then also a bit in Matthew's gospel. And then it is found overwhelmingly in the writing of Paul. Whenever Matthew uses the word euangelion, he ties it to the message of the kingdom. When he says gospel, he will most often say gospel of the kingdom. Um, So for Matthew, and that's not surprising, Matthew's gospel is very focused on the kingdom of God. Matthew sees Jesus' good news as relating to the kingdom. For Paul, though, in Acts 20, 24, he calls it the good news of God's grace. But in his epistles, the predominant phrase he uses is the gospel of Christ. And that phrase, I think, really encapsulates my view of what the gospel is. The good news is Jesus and everything included in Jesus. Now, back to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Is there good news here? Well, of course there is. First, God loves the world. In the Greek, he loves the cosmos, where we get our word cosmos. And that word does not simply refer to the earth, but it refers to the whole 
of ordered creation or the whole of structured creation. In the Greek, there's a verb cosmeo, which means to order something or to structure something. Uh, it made me think of our word cosmetics, which also comes from this Greek word. And it, what is it? Uh, you know, like some of you woke up this morning and made order out of chaos, right? With, <laughs> with cosmetics. Um, and this is interesting. God loves the cosmos. And yet 1 John 2.15 tells us that we are not to be lovers of the world. We are not to be lovers of the cosmos. James 4.4 says that friendship with the cosmos is enmity towards God. But we're talking about two different things here. Carson says Christians are not to love the world with the selfish love of participation. Like when, when John and when James talk about loving the world, they are about, they're talking about loving the cosmos rather than loving the creator of the cosmos. They're talking about selfishly participating in the cosmos and, and in the culture of the cosmos as if that is where hope is found rather than in the one who created everything. In many ways, it's akin to saying, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the soul, right? Fear, fear the one who created you and created your soul. Don't fear or submit yourself to the creation. Fear and submit yourself to the creator. So, so that's kind of the way we um, are perhaps sinfully inclined to deal with the world, to um, selfishly love it in the form of participation. But Carson says when God loves the world, he loves it with the selfless and costly love of redemption. And that's what John 3.16, I think, wants us to realize, that God's love for the world is so great that it has become costly. And, and the price is his only son. So we could call this part one of verse 16. Part two is that whoever believes in him, him apparently being the son here, will not perish, but will have eternal life. The word that gets translated as perish there can also mean destroy or lose. Um, depending on the context. So whoever believes in him will not be destroyed. Whoever believes in him will not lose. So we get a statement about God's great love, and this love was the catalyst for him giving his only son, but the object of that giving of his son were those who would believe in him so that they would not be destroyed. Is that good news? Well, absolutely it's good news. Is it the gospel? Is it the good news. Not entirely. Remember the point here on John's part is not to present a succinct, all-inclusive statement on what the gospel is, but rather to summarize or encapsulate the things that Jesus has said to Nicodemus. So if anything, this helps us to understand what Jesus meant when he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Jesus effectively said, Nicodemus, you need new life. 
You need a new life. And for Jesus, that new life is tied to the kingdom of God. Look back at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see what the kingdom of God And then again in verse 5, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter, what? The kingdom of God. So the only way you will see the kingdom is for you to be changed. And as it relates to you seeing the kingdom, Nicodemus, the good news is that God doesn't want to see you destroyed. He doesn't want to see you lose because he loves the cosmos, including you and including me and including you, church. He loves it with a ferocious intensity that is so intense, he sent his only son. But you have to believe that news or nothing will be different for you. Which to me, it just kind of seems like common sense. And the object of belief is the primary subject of what we would call the gospel. Christ himself. He is the object of belief. So is John 3.16 good news? It absolutely is. But so is John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's good news as well. Jesus has not come at this time to be an agent of judgment or an agent of condemnation. He has come to be an agent of salvation and an agent of redemption. And this gets further explained in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, remember, the context here is the conversation with Nicodemus, and the thing that Nicodemus seems to be struggling with is belief. There's perhaps a desire to believe, but there's also, there also seems to be this need to understand Justin did a great job last week of pointing out to us that the conversation with Nicodemus is connected to chapter 2, verse 25, which says that Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, meaning Jesus didn't need other people to explain to him what the motivations of people were, for he himself knew what was in man. He had this omniscient knowing of what was inside the people he encountered. So he knew what was in Nicodemus's heart. He knew what was in Nicodemus's mind. He knew the internal struggles he had, the internal questions he was asking. He knew what would be challenging to him. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish ruler, which means he had no shortage of education. He was a learned man. He was a man that had status, who had power, who had position. And like many, he's curious, is this the Messiah? Is this the Christ? But the things he's being asked to believe conflict with what he thinks he knows. Do you remember that part where Jesus says, well, you don't know these things, right? And yet you are a teacher of the Jews, and yet you don't understand this? It's conflicting with what he thinks he knows. And I think that this is why Jesus speaks of wanting us to come to him like little children. Um, This is Matthew 18. 
His disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn, um, that, that could also be translated, unless you repent or unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's almost exactly what he says to Nicodemus. Unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. One translation says, unless you change and become like children. I know you're an adult, but you need to change and be a child. I know you've been born, but you need to change and be reborn. You know, children don't have like established worldviews that they are rooted in. Um, children are not encumbered by titles and positions or livelihoods. Children are more open and teachable than adults. Children are not hindered by what they know or think they know. And, and so imagine the social cost for somebody like Nicodemus. He would potentially be giving up his position and his status, like as a ruler among the Pharisees, but even more difficult, I think, he would have to humble himself intellectually because Jesus is presenting him with a completely different grid. Right? This is someone who knows God. This is someone who teaches the law of God. But what Jesus is telling him sort of blows up what he thinks he knows about God or what he thinks he knows about the Messiah. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Read it this way. The light has come into the world, but the people were more comfortable just doing what they'd always done. Or the people were happier to continue thinking in the way that they had always thought. This talk of light should draw our attention back to John's prologue in chapter 1 where he said, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. He was in the cosmos, and the cosmos was made through him, yet the cosmos did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of, the man, of man, but of God. Listen, change is hard in general. And, and most people tend to be resistant to change, even when the perceived end goal of the change is good. The process of getting there is what deters us, is it not? We get locked into patterns and habits, and often those patterns are destructive, even if the destructiveness of them is not obvious. Even if the destructiveness of the pattern or the habit is the fact that it lulls us into this state of sleep or this state of just contentment with the status quo. Our family has completely changed our diet over the first four months of this year. I mean, we ate healthy-ish before, but we decided to try eating a vegan diet, and it's been really challenging, right? 
Like just, just making the shift out of old habits in the new habits. Forget about maybe eating things that I didn't want to eat. Like just, just the way you do things on a daily basis. You're kind of locked into some of those things. Uh, Lindsay and I have also stopped drinking. And we weren't like ridiculous drinkers before, but it was something where we would have a drink most nights. And just breaking out of the habit and the comfort that just the habit brings, like just the habitual nature of things, is the hardest part. When you do anything repeatedly over time, you form muscle memory. And changing that muscle memory is hard work because you didn't get there overnight, right? You had to repeat it for a long period of time. And in order to get out of it, you have to repeat a new habit or a new set of patterns over time. And yet, the changes that have come because of those things have been wonderful, right? Um, I've lost like 15 pounds. I'm back down to my pre-pandemic weight, everybody. Um, I'm sleeping like a baby. Like, I, I have way more energy during the day and in the evening than I had before. And, and those things have been tremendous. And yet the thing is, I would have told you before that I felt fine and didn't even realize that I felt subpar. Didn't even realize that I could feel better or have more energy or sleep better because what I had gotten locked into had become normalized to me. Maybe you see some of those own those things in your own life as well. This is why believing in Jesus is hard. Fear, anxiety, hopelessness, dread, joylessness, worry, recurring sins have become, for many of us, so normalized that we don't realize how oppressed we actually are. We don't realize how weighed down by those things we actually, actually are because they've just always kind of been there. They've always been the case. It's not easy for anyone, and Jesus makes that clear in his teaching. It's not easy because it involves humbling yourself and believing things that you don't fully understand. It involves breaking out of patterns and sins that have become habitual, ways of thinking that have become habitual, which for most people is simply a non-starter. And the question that chapter 3 leaves us wondering is, was what Jesus told Nicodemus a non-starter for him? In, in the way giving away all his money was a non-starter for the rich young ruler. But the reward of this kind of life change are things more valuable than weight loss or sleeping better or increased energy. It is eternal life. And here's the beauty. You are not on your own to tackle these things. It is a work that God is doing in you in partnership with you. And he's given you the church. He's given you this community so that you can be walking with people who are also seeking to do the same thing. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
Now, the Bible doesn't use the words evil and wicked in the way that we do. Most of us in here would probably say that there was a time in our lives, or, or we wouldn't say this, we wouldn't say there was a time in our lives where we were evil or wicked, and then I met Jesus. No, we would say things like, there was a time when I was lost, or there was a time when I didn't believe the gospel. Or there was a time when I was really self-focused and unconcerned with the things of God. Most of us associate evil and wickedness with like heinous crimes or just like extreme debauchery. If we're being honest, most of us think we were predominantly good people who then became followers of Christ. But when the Bible uses these words, evil and wickedness, it is speaking of anyone who is not submitted to God, who is not in Christ, as Paul would say, to be on your own, outside of Christ, doing your own thing in the schema of Scripture is to be evil. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, whoever is not with me, is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. But if you embrace the truth, it says in verse 21, um, or in other words, if you believe in Jesus, then you are proverbially coming to the light. You are arriving at the truth. Again, this is one of John's big themes, darkness and light. And his point here in verse 21 is central if you're going to understand verse 16 correctly. He's saying, if you have come to the light, it's not just something you have done. It is actually something God has done within you. It's so that the works of God will be seen. Yes, you are being called to believe this truth, but John will make the case that it is God who draws you to the truth in the first place. He draws you to this belief, and it is God who accomplishes the effects of this belief in and through Christ in your life. So what does he really want from you and me? What does he want from us? Not simple agreement with some intellectual propositions regarding Jesus as the Son of God. That's not, that's not it entirely. What he really wants is childlike humility from you and me. The psalmist says that the sacrifices that God desires from us are a broken and contrite heart. In other words, the sacrifices that God's looking for from us are not animals. He's not looking for us to somehow make sacrifice to atone for our own sin. What God's looking for from us are hearts that are coming in humility and submission to him, who are proverbially prostrating ourselves before him and recognizing who he is and who we are in light of who he is. He wants us to sacrifice, church, our pride and to call upon him as Savior, not looking to things in the cosmos to be our Savior, not looking to the world or to money or to status or position or knowledge or family or relationships or marriage or career or any of those things, but looking to the one who created all of that. Nicodemus, I'm asking you to set aside what you think you know and humble yourself and come to what is actually true. Come to the light. So is John 3.16 the gospel? 
Yes and no. It is certainly a part of the gospel in that it tells us of God's motivation for sending Christ and the promise of eternal life to all who believe. But there are also key elements that we associate with the gospel that are not present in John 3.16. There is no mention of forgiveness of sins. There is no mention of repentance. There is no talk of adoption into God's family or being co-heirs with Christ. There's no talk of being ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Also notice that there's no mention here of like heaven or the kingdom of God, at least in 316, of like going and being with God in his kingdom, which is the way that 316 is most often presented to people, that it is this message of accept an intellectual proposition about Jesus as the son of God, and then when you die, you get to go to heaven instead of hell. That's what the gospel has been reduced to. And yet the gospel is far bigger and far more expansive than just that simple truth. And this is where Paul gets really helpful. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul says, here's here's the high-level synopsis, church in Corinth, of the gospel message that I proclaim to you. Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised, And he then proved his resurrection by appearing to all kinds of people. And many of those people are still around and can testify that this is what happened. It's what the Old Testament said would happen also. Did you notice how he said this happened in accordance with the scriptures and this happened in accordance with the scriptures? I'm going to boil this down even more for us. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. The good news is Jesus. And I actually think this is more the case that John is making. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation of Christ in and of itself is the gospel because he has not come to condemn us. He has come to save us. God himself became flesh and dwelt among us, and he did so so that we might be saved. And all the details of why the gospel is good news flow from that singular truth, that God became flesh so that we might not be destroyed or condemned. If none of that happened, then there is no gospel. I think this is why Paul said that this is of first importance, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, right? If that didn't happen, then none of this is true. None of this is real. 
If you're truly a believer today, Jesus' call on your life is for you to humble yourself, to turn from the path that you are on, to forsake old habits and beliefs and patterns, to not rest on what you think you know, and to follow him, to intentionally put yourself under his leadership, to become an apprentice to the master rabbi, Jesus. And he does not promise that that will be easy, but he does promise that it will be better, that you will win and not lose, and that you will live and not die. Let me close with this thought. You may not have noticed this in 1 Corinthians when we read Paul But what he says is that Jesus rose and then Jesus appeared to all these people. He said in verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Very quickly in the early church, the language changes. For people who are in Christ, when what we would view as death occurs, the early church viewed that as sleep because they believed the words of John 3.16 to be true. No, no, no. Death would would have like a, a level of finality to it. Death is the end. But we have been saved from death. And so in the mind of the early church, even though what we see looks like death, it is not the end. It's actually the beginning. And these sleepers will awake and will be resurrected in the last day and will have glorified bodies and will be with Jesus forever and ever. You will not perish, but you will have eternal life. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to break out of the patterns of thinking and the patterns of sin that we so easily and unconsciously fall into. And help us to rest in your power and not our own. Help us to not lean on our own understanding, but on your complete and total understanding. And I pray, Father, today that through your power and the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would pull us deeper and deeper into faith in Christ and a state of discipleship where we are truly more so tomorrow than yesterday walking with Jesus as our Lord and Master. We ask this in his name. Amen. Stand with us.